Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this all-new episode, Bishop and Kyle talk about Humane Vitae, a papal encyclical released 50 years ago today. And today is also the feast of St. James the Apostle, one of the Sons of Thunder and the first apostle to be martyred. Then, in just a few days, the diocese will be celebrating the first memorial of Blessed Solanus Casey, a priest with a connection to St. Felix Catholic Center in Huntington. Hear about how the diocese is remembering this special priest. Afterwards, it's Catholic Word of the Week, and then Bishop answers questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop a question, you can submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and today is the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae. Uh, I'll actually give people a heads up. We're probably going to be discussing this on August 22nd with Deacon Fred Everett and his wife, Lisa. Uh, But wanted to get your opinion on Humana Vitae, and maybe you can fill us a little bit of the background of this document. And maybe we could start with reminding us what an encyclical is. Yes, thank you, Kyle. Well, an encyclical is a a letter from the Pope and usually deals with some very important, uh, an important matter. It's a vehicle by which the Pope gives authoritative church teaching. And this encyclical was probably the most controversial encyclical in recent church history, Humane Vitae, beautiful encyclical that, as you mentioned, Blessed Pope Paul VI issued on July 25th, 1968. And prior to issuing the encyclical, Pope Paul VI had established a study commission. Actually, Pope John XXIII had already established a commission, but Pope Paul VI enlarged it. And uh, to look with various experts, to look on various new questions that had arisen concerning married life, especially the issue of birth regulation. 
the issue of artificial contraception. After receiving the conclusions reached by the commission, the Pope took those into account. The commission was not in full agreement on these issues, so the Pope, in his own discernment, issued this encyclical letter where he explained you know, reviewed the, the doctrine of the church on these issues about conjugal love, the nature of human life, and the nature of marriage, etc., and uh, the vision that comes to us from Christ of the marital vocation, and of course, the meaning of human sexuality. So it's very beautiful to read. He looks at the issue of responsible parenthood and conjugal love, and he taught the importance of of our respecting the nature and the purpose of the marriage act the conjugal act and he reaffirmed the perennial teaching of of the church on this matter so talking about how there's an inseparable connection willed by god between the two meanings or the two significances of the conjugal act, the unitive and the procreative. And these are two inseparable aspects, union and procreation. So, as we know, this, um, this act by which a husband and wife are united is the means by which we have the generation of new life. So there's a unitive and a procreative dimension. And uh, these are inseparable. Of course, that means that things that impede that union or impede the possibility of procreation are illicit. And therefore, Pope Paul VI declared that not only is direct sterilization prohibited, but also artificial contraception, intentionally making conjugal acts infertile. Anyhow, this as you know, you know, this came out not long after we have the birth control pill, etc. And then the Pope talked about other means that are licit or lawful when couples have recourse where they can space out births through recourse to infertile times, which gets to the whole thing of, of natural family planning. And mm-hmm. we've had a lot of development in methods of natural family planning in the past 50 years since Humane Vitae. It was a document that was very prophetic because Pope Paul VI pointed out serious consequences of using artificial birth regulation, and we've seen those things come to pass. He talked about how with greater use of of contraception, there would be a lessening of respect for women, there would be a growth in things like pornography, there'd be a growth in divorce, and all these things, he said, if, if we strayed from the God-given meaning of sexuality. And sadly, we've seen the Pope's uh, predictions were true. They came to pass. Now, I, I really encourage people to read the encyclical. I'm glad you're going to have another program where you'll get into it more deeply. The Holy Father spoke about... Um, how this living the divine law on this is possible. Yes, it requires sacrifice. It requires self-mastery. He promotes the virtue of chastity. And I think it's a, 
a wonderful document. Now, now we do see development since then, especially with St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which got into much more depth and much more detail on why the church teaches what it does in this area. But this was really a landmark encyclical. But it did lead to a lot of opposition, a lot of dissent, which was kind of unheard of. There were actual protests and theologians who spoke out publicly against the Pope and this teaching. It was a very turbulent time, and we still see the remnants of that today. But I do think this 50th anniversary is something to celebrate. It reminds me of how the Lord guides the successors of St. Peter in exercising their ministry for defending the truth of the gospel, but also for the true happiness and fulfillment of human beings. Is the encyclical, Humana Vitae, is that an infallible document? The Well, we really don't talk about infallible documents. I think we would talk about infallible teachings within the document. Okay. That's an interesting question because there are theologians who, who do hold that... Um, that the teaching of the church on contraception is infallible. Mm -hmm. There are other theologians who would disagree with that. You know, it was not an ex cathedra statement, so, but I think one can argue that it's infallible by virtue of it being the ordinary magisterium of the church that the Pope and the College of Bishops and the faithful have held as something definitively revealed by God. So that would be an interesting question to ask Deacon Fred and Lisa, because they're probably have read more about that issue, but it's authoritative church teaching. And I really do encourage our listeners to, if they haven't already, to prayerfully read and reflect on Humani Vitae. It's not a very long encyclical. No, no, not, not at all. It's about the copy I have is probably about 25 pages okay. and they're, they're smaller pages. Yeah. Any highlights that you remember from from any quotes or? I would say that I remember the towards the end of the encyclical where Pope Paul addresses different groups like doctors, medical professionals, priests, bishops, and hu obviously husbands and wives. And I think he, it, it comes across very, how would I say, um, pastoral and challenging, yes but really calling upon us of whatever vocations we are to live this teaching. And when this came out 50 years ago, you mentioned some resistance and I guess resistance ever since then as well. What do you think of the cause of that resistance is? What are people taking issue with within these, this teaching? Well, I think a lot of people just bought into the whole contraceptive mentality. Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of Jesus's teaching about entering through the narrow gate. The wide gate is much easier. So it does require sacrifice. And I think the culture promotes the pill and other illicit means of contraception and even direct sterilization that are people living in this culture. It's so countercultural yeah. to follow this teaching of the church. All right. Well, another thing that we are celebrating on July 30th, Monday, the first ever memorial of Blessed Solanus Casey. Uh, and I know you're going to be blessing a new life-size bronze statue of Blessed Solanus at the St. Felix Catholic Center in Huntington. That'll happen on July 30th at 2 p.m. Are people welcome to attend that event? Oh, yes. Everyone's welcome. 
And then Father Solanus Casey lived at St. Felix from 1946 through 1956. So the whole idea of celebrating this feast day was something that was important to you and that you got permission to do as a diocese. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I had to, to write to the Vatican because when someone's beatified, they're not on the universal calendar. And even if they're canonized, they're not always. But on local diocesan calendars, we would need the the permission of the Vatican in order to celebrate it. And because of the local connection that he lived in Huntington at St. Felix for almost 10 years, the Vatican granted that permission. And I thought it was important not only to spread devotion of Father Solanus Casey in our diocese, but there's already been a, a constant devotion to him, especially mm -hmm. in Huntington. We have a chapter of the Father Solanus Casey Guild you know, it's centered in Detroit, but we have a chapter here in in Huntington. And we also have another group called Praying with Father Solanus that has monthly masses for the sick at St. Felix. And a lot of people come to that. And even our vocation organization in Fort Wayne, the former Sarah Club, is now named in honor of Father Solanus Casey. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of local affection for him. There's people I've met who, some older people who who remember Father Casey, Father Solanus. That's really neat. Um, people who have stories about him. And I've used him as an example for our priests as well, especially because of Father Solanus's love and care for the sick and the poor. I think he's a great model for priests. Even though he was a simplex priest, he wasn't allowed to preach or hear confessions. He lived a priestly life and ministry in such a beautiful and exemplary way. So I'm looking forward to blessing the statue and celebrating his memorial for the first time on, on July 30th. And I believe they've got some of Blessed Solanus Casey's belongings at the St. Felix Catholic Center in Huntington. But are there any first-class relics of him in the diocese? We just received them a week or two ago. We, from Detroit, from the Capuchin community, we got two first-class relics, one for the chapel at St. Felix and one that they gave to me uh, hmm. that I am now keeping in, in the chapel in my residence as I discern where I would like that to be available for public veneration. So it's wonderful to have those relics. All right, and for more on the life and legacy of Blessed Solanus Casey, people can check out the episodes that were aired November 15th and also April 11th. You can find those on the website at redeemerradio.com slash askbishop, as well as all the past episodes of Truth and Charity. And also for more information on the diocesan celebration, listeners can go to diocesefwsb.org slash Solanus Casey. And then again, that's the diocesan website slash Solanus-Casey for more information on that. And coming up, we'll chat about the Feast of St. James the Apostle, also our Catholic Word of the Week, which is benediction. And we'll have questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking about a lot of the different things that have been happening uh, this week that we're celebrating. Also, today is the Feast of St. James the Apostle. There were only a, a small group of people, and he was chosen among them. Did he have any special qualifications for that, or is, is it really just kind of this diverse group of 
maybe a ragtag group of <laughs> fishermen and odd and ends. And uh, sometimes it seems to me that they were maybe the least expected of people. Right. I mean, we, he was a fisherman. He was the brother of John. And uh, if you remember when we read in uh, the gospel of the call of uh, Simon and Andrew, Simon who became Peter, immediately after our Lord called the sons of Zebedee, James and John. So all these four first apostles were fishermen. But I, I have a question for you, Kyle, because I think sometimes I want to make sure you're keeping up with your faith. Okay. Um, are we talking about today St. James the Greater or St. James the Lesser? Because there's two apostles named James, you know. Yeah, so um, that's a good question. This is the Greater. Very good. Okay. You're right. Good. St. James the Greater. Okay. That's um, rather unfortunate to be <laughs> if you're the lesser, I guess. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. But yeah, remember in the the story of James and John were, were mending their nets when Jesus called them. And when Peter and Andrew, you know, they followed Jesus, they left everything behind. So did James and John, but they also left their father because mm-hmm. he had been there, their father Zebedee in the boat. I always like to reflect on that. Like, what was it about Jesus that made them, you know, so promptly get up and leave to follow him. There must have been something, certainly God's grace in their hearts, but there must have been something about Jesus that really attracted them, uh, you know, that, yeah, this was someone that they wanted to learn more from. When I think about St. James and his importance, oftentimes in the gospel, Jesus would call Peter, James, and John apart from the rest. So those three apostles, Peter, James, and John, were privileged witnesses of certain things that the other apostles weren't there for. For example, they were the three at the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor that Jesus brought up the mountain with him, Mm -hmm. and they got to see our Lord in glory. Just a couple weeks ago, I noticed this, and I never noticed it before. I don't know how I didn't notice it, but in the gospel of the raising of the daughter of Jairus from the dead, yeah, when they arrived at the house where the dead daughter was, Jesus entered, but only with Peter, James, and John. Hmm. He invited them to go in with him when he did that great miracle of raising her from the dead. So there's certain unique things. Also, if you recall at the Garden of Gethsemane, who were the apostles that Jesus brought with him? Peter, James, and John. Now, of course, they fell asleep. Uh, <laughs> but um, can't win them all. But but yeah, they they were. I guess you could call them quite uh, prominent apostles. Yeah. Is there any significance into uh, these stories, which kind of have similar beginnings of Simon and Andrew leaving their fishing nets to follow Jesus, and then we hear about James and John leaving their fishing nets and their father? to follow Jesus. Is that is that an important part there? Yeah, because I think it shows us that Jesus needs to be, have primacy in our life. Not only more important than our work, mm-hmm. but even over our family relationships. Uh, so that detail is not insignificant. All right. Another thing that has always caught my attention uh, in Mark 3:17, Jesus names James and John I'm not sure the, the word, the translation there, but it, it's sons of thunder. Yeah. What, what, is, what is that word that they translate as sons of thunder? The word in, in Greek is boanerges. Okay. I think 
it's interesting this this title that Jesus gave them. It's kind of like Jesus gave them this nickname, Sons of Thunder. I think it was because of their their temperament, their personality. <laughs> if you remember, and an example of this, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he was going through Samaria, and the Samaritans wouldn't welcome him because he was on his way to Jerusalem, and they didn't accept. You know, they were a different religion. So James and John were upset that the Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus. So when they heard what they, uh, you know, saw how they were acting towards Jesus, they said to the Lord, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And uh, I mean, it's just typical, you know, yeah. it's got to be a very human reaction. I mean, they were angry. And what did our Lord have to do? He had to rebuke them, uh-huh. you know? So they were the sons of thunder. We can think also about the time when they asked the Lord to have the seats of honor in his kingdom. And uh, that was kind of a bold request. And Jesus had to correct them again. Our Lord said, you don't know what you're asking. Hmm. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? But you know what? It's interesting. James was the first of the apostles who drank the cup. He was the first of the apostles that was martyred. I think of that sometimes. You know, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12, we read how um, probably in the the 40s, King Herod Agrippa, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, laid violent hands uh, upon uh, some of the disciples, some of the early Christians. And it says specifically in Acts chapter 12, I think it's verse 2, that, that he had James, the brother of John, killed by the sword. Hmm. So, doesn't describe much more about it, but it reveals how um, how St. James witnessed to the Lord with his own life and uh, probably was the first of the apostles to do so, the first of the 12. That's interesting. I think also, thinking back to previous episodes of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, did you mention that you have been to the burial site of St. James? No, it's a place I've always wanted to go. That's what it was. It's in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. That's the tradition. And, you know, we have the Camino, you know, and people on the famous Camino de Santiago, where they walk, and this goes back to the Middle Ages, that famous pilgrimage. Well, they're on their way to the burial place of St. James. Uh And that's in, yeah, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. It's a place I've always wanted to go, but I haven't had the opportunity yet. All right. Well, another thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit is, and this could possibly be our Catholic word of the week, benediction. Can you talk about this? I I feel like there maybe is a generic idea of what benediction is, and maybe there's a specific definition of it as well. I mean, the Latin, you know, bene, Uh good, dixio, a saying. Okay. So, a good saying is what a, be- a benediction is, a blessing. Uh-huh. You, it's a, a, something where there's wishing good, you know? And um, the opposite, of course, is a malediction, mm. maledictio, a curse, wishing bad. You know, obviously, a blessing is, is invoking God's goodness, God's grace upon something, so it's a very good thing. Mm-hmm. And also, I hear this referred to a lot of times within the context of a holy hour or adoration. They'll have they'll end with benediction, right? And that's benediction with the blessed sacrament, which okay. is a very special blessing because 
benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, it's Jesus himself. When you think about it, the priest isn't giving the blessing. It's Jesus. The priest is holding the monstrance that contains the Holy Eucharist. But notice he doesn't hold it with his bare hands when he's giving the blessing. He has a humeral veil on, a cloth over his shoulders. And that symbolizes the fact that when he's giving the blessing, that he himself isn't touching the monstrance because he has the cloth in between, that it's not him blessing. It's Jesus blessing. And so maybe on the most broad level, any kind word or a blessing mm -hmm. to somebody would be a benediction. And then on the most extreme is the benediction with adoration yeah. where we're being blessed by Jesus in the Eucharist. And then maybe in between, would any priest's blessing or a blessing that happens within the context of a mass or something like that, would that be considered a benediction as well? Yes. And those, yeah, because the, the word benediction, it means blessing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that clarification. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about the urgency of baptism, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. If you're enjoying Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, be sure to check out Redeemer Radio's other locally produced programs, including The Kyle Hyman Show, Dr. Doctor, and Church Life Today. To listen to previous episodes of any of these, go to RedeemerRadio.com and select Audio Library, or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and listen there. You can also submit questions for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future episode of Truth and Charity on the app or website. Or if you have a question for Dr. Doctor, a show featuring three physicians from the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, you can submit it there too. So don't forget the Redeemer Radio app and website for past episodes of all our locally produced shows. Thanks for listening to and supporting Redeemer Radio as we continue our mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. I am going to be asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to respond to. And our first submission is, I agree with the command to go out and baptize. I am wondering why then as catechumens, especially since many of those people have never been baptized, do we not allow the sacrament right away? It seems the instruction was to go out and baptize and there would be an urgency to do so if someone is wanting it. That's a good question. I would just say that very early on in the history of the church, there was a necessity of a period of preparation for baptism because it's not just baptism by itself. It's always faith and baptism. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise it can be reduced to some kind of a magical thing. No, this is not magic. Baptism, by which we receive God's grace, requires on our part faith. So it's always faith and baptism. Now we baptize infants on the faith of the parents and the godparents, that they are the ones who profess faith on behalf of 
of the child who doesn't have the capacity yet. But in order then, one has to have a certain knowledge of the faith. So we have a period called the catechumenate, and this goes back to very early in the church's history, because how can one give assent to baptism, to the Trinity, to Christ, if one doesn't know him and his teachings? Mm -hmm. So that's why we don't baptize adults without prior instruction. Okay. Our next question is, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit referenced in Mark 3, verses 28 and 29? Thank you. It's a good question. It's, it's you know, we talk about that one sin that can't be forgiven, the unforgivable sin, right. which is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it really is the refusal to accept the salvation which God offers to us through the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, a sin against the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is really this this issue of something that's unforgivable by its very nature. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote about this because, you know, if one doesn't repent, if one doesn't accept the gift that God is offering, if one refuses to be converted, one is saying no to the Holy Spirit through whom God is offering us salvation. It's basically this failure to, to repent, failure, failure to convert, failure to say yes to this wonderful gift of salvation. Okay. God doesn't force us. Right. <laughs> Such a gentleman. Aaron Heckber from Fort Wayne asked, the three archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, are the only angels named in sacred scripture. I've heard them referenced with their archangel title, but have also heard them referenced as saints, St. Michael, St. Gabriel, St. Raphael. Is it correct and okay to reference them as saints? Yes. The word saint, what does it mean? The Greek is hagios. It means holy, Mm -hmm. holy one, hagios or sanctus in Latin. So the holy one, that's the definition, the etymology of the word saint. So it doesn't mean just a holy human being. Mm -hmm. It can apply to holy ones that aren't human. Well, the only holy ones other than God himself who aren't human would be the angels. And so that's why we can call the three great archangels, the only ones that we know the names of, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, they said yes to God. They were not fallen angels. They were good, holy angels. So really, all the angels who said yes to God, we can call saints, but they're the only three that we know the names. So we can say St. Michael, St. Gabriel, and St. Raphael, even though they're not human. They were holy, spiritual creatures. Could you say St. Jesus? I mean, we do address God often as Holy One. Yeah. And Jesus is holy, but all holy, really, perfectly holy. Uh-huh. But I've never heard that Jesus called Saint Jesus. Okay. But, but really, as an adjective, Jesus was holy. Sure. Yeah. Our next question is, is it hard to view people the same after they go to confession with you? No. I don't even... It just goes out of my mind, actually. I mean, I... I do not view people differently at all. I mean, we're all sinners. And um, yeah, it doesn't change at all. Is that something that you get used to or is that just natural? 
For me, it's been natural. Yeah. I know. I mean, to me, you know, the confessional is so sacred, and and so um, so private that um, yeah, it, it doesn't come into the way I view people afterwards. Okay. Another listener asked, I am amazed that some abortion supporters are angered when shown a model of an unborn baby. These 3D models fit into the palm of your hand and are anatomically correct representations of what an unborn baby looks like around 12 weeks. One family member dismissed it as anti-abortion propaganda, which made no sense to me. How can I refute them? How is showing them the truth pushing propaganda? Wow, you know what? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me either. But you know what I would do with if someone thought that those um, 3D models are just anti-abortion propaganda? Give them something else. I would mm-hmm. give them a something scientific, medical field about fetal development. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like I know there's a, uh, a thing produced by the Cleveland Clinic that talks about the stage of a baby's development from from the beginning, from fertilization all the way through each month. So if it's something that's not uh, produced by the church, it's, it's done by scientists, by doctors, they can't say it's anti-abortion propaganda. Yeah, I mean, it's scientific truth. You look at the first month and you see the development of, of the baby. And I think you mentioned, the, the, the caller mentioned 12 weeks. Well, by the third month, we have the baby's arms, hands, fingers, feet, toes, they're fully formed. Yeah. You know, even have the beginning of the external ears, the fingernails, the toenails, the teeth. I mean, all one has to do is look at the science. So that's what I would do. I would give them something from science. Sure. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 260- Four three six ninety five ninety eight, and we have more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. I'm going to continue to ask questions that you've submitted. One of our listeners said. I am born and raised Catholic, but I did study the Jehovah's Witness faith for two years with a friend. They claim to be the only real and true faith, but are they really Christian or the true faith? Well, the Jehovah Witnesses are are really not Christians. Uh, They will identify themselves as Christians, but they don't believe in the Holy Trinity, and they don't believe in Jesus as the eternal Son of God. Mm Mm-hmm consubstantial with the Father. So, and they also don't believe in the Holy Spirit as a divine person. They they see the Holy Spirit as a force. So, you know, if one denies the central tenets of the Christian faith, and that is the truth about the Blessed Trinity, one God and three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which then also includes belief in the divinity of Christ, most Christians, and certainly Catholics and most other Christians, you know, that, that's essential to being a Christian. And um, the Jehovah Witnesses have a, a lot of unusual doctrines, to be honest. They can be very aggressive in their proselytism. It goes back to the, it was a religion that kind of began in the, the 19th century with a man by the name of Charles Taze Russell. And he was succeeded by Joseph Rutherford, who was uh, very, very anti-Catholic, uh, really hated Catholic Catholicism, 
when you see his pamphlets and he had a radio program so that that anti-catholicism you still see sometimes in some articles in the watchtower but it's been tempered somewhat from the anti-catholicism of the past Mm -hmm. but jehovah witnesses are are very involved in visiting homes and trying to make converts but I would honestly say that there's some uh, quite strange teachings and interpretations of the Bible. But Orthodox Christianity has condemned as heresy the rejection of the full divinity of Christ or those who think that Jesus was a human person, not a divine person. You know, this goes back to the fourth century heresy of Arianism. So Jehovah Witnesses' uh, opposition to the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, that uh, God the Father, God the Son, and Holy and God the Holy Spirit are one God. Those who oppose that, we don't believe, can be called authentic Christians. Okay, and I think we've mentioned this in the past, but I thought worth bringing up again. Julie Couch asked, "What is the Red Mass, the White Mass, and the Blue Mass?" Yes, the Red Mass is a Mass traditionally offered every year for those in the legal profession, judges, lawyers, etc., mm-hmm. law professors. The White Mass is for those in the medical profession, and the Blue Mass, those who are involved in law enforcement and emergency responses. So, yeah, they're all annual Masses, and of course, the red is, is a color for the Red Mass, because the, the, back when this started in the Middle Ages, the uh, judges wore red robes, but of course, red is also the color that we wear vestments for the Holy Spirit. So the red mass is a mass, votive mass of the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit's guidance of judges, especially. Uh-huh. The white mass goes back to doctors wearing white coats mm-hmm. and the blue mass, the blue uniforms of police officers. Sure. And are all three of those masses offered in the diocese? Here in our diocese, we have the red mass every year both on the South Bend side and Fort Wayne side. White Mass also, and it's organized by, oh, by the way, the Red Mass is organized by the St. Thomas More Society. The White Mass is on both ends of the diocese, organized by our Catholic medical guilds mm-hmm. and uh, celebrating both sides. And then the Blue Mass, they've had a tradition of having the Blue Mass at Notre Dame at the Basilica every year. I've never okay. celebrated that Mass, but I do think they were just starting a Blue Mass in Fort Wayne that I think I might be celebrating. It might be this fall, but I don't, I'm not positive. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll definitely get people information about that. Another listener mentioned, you provide a lot of great book suggestions. What are you currently reading? Well, you know what? I'm never reading just one book at a time. (laughs) Okay. I, uh, I'm actually right now reading three books. Uh Um, one has become a very popular bestseller. It's uh, published right here in our diocese, Uh our Sunday visitor, the largest Catholic English publisher in the world. Wow. Uh, oh, Our Sunday Visitor mm-hmm. has great books. But this one is going to be one of its all-time bestsellers. It's called The Fisherman's Tomb. I interviewed him. Oh, you did? Yes. John O'Neill. Yeah. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. Have you ever been to uh, the Vatican, Kyle? I have, but I don't know if you I've haven't ever seen, seen the no. tomb. Oh, next time you go, I can get you tickets All right. to go to the uh, excavations under St. Peter's yeah. Basilica and see his tomb. But it's really, I mean, I, 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 I mean I've I, been there many times. 
But I didn't know the whole. I knew part of the story, but now I started reading this story. I didn't know about the like the guy from Texas who right. financed this, etc. So anyhow, I recommend it. Uh, the Fisherman's Tomb, another book that is actually also from another publisher in our diocese, Ave Maria Press at Notre Dame. So we have two big publishers, OSB and Ave Maria Press. But this is a book entitled What Matters Most. Mm -hmm. And its uh, subtitle is Empowering Young Catholics for Life's Big Decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I've mentioned before, the youth and young adults are a priority of mine. But this is, I just started the book. It's very good. But I said, I, I ordered, I don't know, I think 100 copies. And I've given it to all of our <laughs> high school religion teachers and our youth ministers. Yeah. It's written by Lenny DiLorenzo, uh-huh. who um, works at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. And he's a, a, a very good theologian and young man. Uh, Lenny DiLorenzo runs the Vision ND program for high school students in the mm-hmm. summer. Well, he wrote this book called What Matters Most. And since he is so has so much experience at Notre Dame with young adult Catholics, with college-age kids, and he has some wonderful reflections in there, uh, so I've, I've been enjoying that. A third book is, is, is much more academic. It's called, it's by Ryan Anderson, who I also met at Notre Dame. And the book is called When Harry Became Sally, mm. Responding to the Transgender Moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ryan Anderson is, is a really good scholar. I've, I've heard him speak on the issue of, of same-sex marriage. He wrote a book. I co-authored a book called What is Marriage? Hmm. And I remember reading that some years ago. And now he's uh, written this book about uh, the uh, gender ideology thing and transgenderism, which is a big challenge for us today. But And he's writing not as a theologian. He's writing really from his background as a philosopher. And he draws on a lot of information from psychology and biology. I needed to be more educated on this. So far, it's it's really an excellent book. So if anyone wants to know more about this, an analysis of the ideas uh, behind the this whole transgender movement, I think this is a, a very good book to read, When Harry Became Sally. Right. And um, it's published by Encounter Books. Okay, such an important topic too right now. Yeah, and uh, and Ryan Anderson, you know, attained his doctorate at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm not quite sure where he's at right now, but yeah, he's a very good young scholar. Finally, somebody mentioned during Eucharistic adoration, I have heard that there should be at least three people present at all times. What if you are the only one there and you can't stay until someone else comes in? Is there a significance in the number that must be present? I don't know of any significance in the number. I always thought that the requirement was at least two people there. The idea is we shouldn't just leave the Eucharist exposed without anyone there. You know, it's not not only not respectful, it's also not guarding mm-hmm. the Eucharist. That's, you know, it's not locked in a monstrance. So I think um, we don't want to let that happen. So if that, if one is the only one there and there's no one coming and one has to leave, then one should place the Luna, which is the, the, what the host is contained in, back in the tabernacle and lock it. Okay. So 
three is not a significant number. That no, might just th- be. No, there's. Yeah, that might be that parish. One in the extra churches, just in case. I, what I've read is that you know you want to have at least two in case one would have to right go or something like that. Oh. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next week for another new episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop talking about his recent travels and saints whose feast days we will soon celebrate. And of course, listener submitted questions. If you have a question for Bishop, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. You'll get an email confirming your question was received and another letting you know when your question will air. To hear any of the previous 53 episodes of Truth in Charity anywhere and anytime, select Audio Library either on the Redeemer Radio app or website. Or search for Truth in Charity anywhere you listen to podcasts. Then hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.